It's the Stitch in Haste podcast. Commentary, rants, and rebuttals from the world's foremost gay, libertarian, econo-blogger. Recorded at the center of the universe, New York City. Law, politics, economics, religion, gay rights, foreign affairs, science, culture, humor, and, of course, Diamond the Dog. My name is Kip. Welcome. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this inaugural edition of the Stitch and Haste podcast. I wonder if maybe it's better to call it the alpha version of the podcast. may tweak the format down the road. I'm not sure. The purpose of these podcasts will be to address a topic that I either don't feel like addressing in detail on my blog. My blog, incidentally, www.kipesquire.com. Or because I've maybe already addressed the issue and don't feel like readdressing it. That may be the case with next week's podcast. I haven't thought about that. It may Maybe to respond to comments, emails, maybe to conduct interviews, if it gets to that point, hold roundtable discussions. There's all kinds of things you might be able to do. The podcast will be no more often than weekly, and probably less than weekly, and I'm going to try to keep them to 20 minutes max. I hope the audio quality is good. I'm using a noise filter that seems to truncate words, so I'm trying to talk elaborately, not elaborately, and that's about it. For this first podcast, I want to talk about a case that's in the news right now on a topic that's very dear to my heart, and that topic is student rights, rights of students, particularly free speech rights. The case was argued recently in the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, and I want to describe the case to you a little bit, and I want to talk about one particular issue regarding, I'm not going to go into a detailed analysis, I'm not going to review the quite robust body of case law regarding student speech. I just want to focus on one question that I think is going to be very important when the decision is handed down. We had oral arguments. We're not going to wait for the decision. And I want to raise one issue that we should be looking for when that case is handed down. I'd actually already blogged about this case back in July of 2007. It's now at the circuit court level. I'm going to very quickly describe the facts of the case. Facts are very complicated. But the relevant facts, I think, are not. And the facts that the trial court judge used in arguing his position are not very complicated. The ironic part is if the judge had used all the facts, it would have made his case better. He could have argued his, he could have supported his reasoning better than he did by leaving out a lot of the facts from the case. The case, incidentally, is called Doninger v. Niehoff. Doninger. Here are the facts. A high school student who was a member of the student government was attending a school that had an annual sort of battle of the bands contest. This student was on the student government and partially responsible for working with the school administration to put this festival together. For a variety of logistical reasons, the event kept getting postponed through no bad intention by the school, just for logistical reasons. And eventually, due to some kind of miscommunication, the student in question was under the mistaken impression that the event had been canceled. Quite upset by this, she went home and on her own computer, in her own home, not, not during school time, did not use school equipment, did not was not on the school premises in any way, went to her live journal page and she posted about the festival and the fact that she thought it had been canceled. And she called 
School administrators, two in particular, the principal and another administrator, quote, douchebags. Now, the principal eventually discovered this, became quite irate, and penalized, and I have to pick that word carefully, penalized, not punished, not disciplined, penalized the student by forbidding her from running for class secretary, which she had been planning to do. She was on the student government. She was planning to run for class secretary. Now, here's an interesting footnote that really isn't too germane to the analysis. She actually won anyway. She staged a write-in campaign, and the students were so supportive of her situation that they cast write-in ballots, and she still won. And the principal still refused to install her, seat her, as the class secretary. She was not suspended, no entry, as I understand it, the fact, the record is a little unclear, no entry was made in her permanent record, she was not disciplined in the strict sense, she was merely denied this opportunity to be the class secretary. She sued, claiming that this was an infringement upon her First Amendment right to post a comment to engage in free speech on her own personal website. And again, we need to emphasize she was not using school equipment. She was not accessing a school account. She was not in school at the time that she posted this content on her private web journal, uh, live journal page. Again, as a footnote that the judge did not emphasize, I will note that she also encouraged people, students, parents, and so forth, who were reading her blog entry to contact the school, to send these two douchebag administrators emails and to call them and to complain about the fact that the festival had been canceled when, incidentally, it hadn't actually been canceled. That could be a relevant point. The judge didn't really base his decision on it, so I won't, I won't base my analysis on it. Now, as far as student speech is concerned, I'm not going to go through all the various cases. I want to focus simply on two. The most famous student speech case is a case called Tinker v. Des Moines, back from 1969 with a very famous quote that you may have heard, students do not shed their constitutional rights at the schoolhouse. It's from 1969, students were trying to wear black armbands to protest. Keep that quote in mind. Students do not shed their constitutional rights at the schoolhouse. The other case that I want to very briefly mention is one that you may know because it's quite uh, current. A case from June 2007 called Morse v. Frederick. You may know it better as the Bong Hits for Jesus case. I'll go through the facts of that case very quick. An individual who was not a minor, he was 18 years old at the time, who was not enrolled in school that day, he had cut class, who was not on the school grounds, he was on a public sidewalk, engaged in expressive conduct. He unfurled a banner that said, Bong Hits for Jesus. School principal saw the banner and not only censored the student by ripping down the banner, but also disciplined by suspending. In a fractured set of opinions, the Supreme Court held that the principal's actions were justified because the speech supposedly disrupted the educational environment. Now, I say fractured for a very important reason, which I'll get to in a minute, but the distressing aspect of Morse v. Frederick was that it took the tinker analysis. Students do not shed their constitutional rights at the schoolhouse gate, or is it schoolyard gate? And Morse turned this analysis upside down and said not only do students shed their constitutional rights at the schoolhouse gate, but they actually shed their rights before they even get to the gate. That just by the status of being a student, they forfeit at least some of their constitutional rights, including some of their First Amendment rights. 24-7, 365, just by being a student, not by being 
on school grounds, not by just engaging in a school activity, just by being a student. In your own home, on a public sidewalk, you can, at least theoretically, be denied your constitutional rights, your First Amendment, an absolutely abominable decision. And I think widely criticized this. The interesting thing, or at least the, the silver lining to the Morse decision, and this is what people forget about Morse, was that, remember I said it was a fractured decision. And it was a fractured decision for this reason, because the majority opinion written by Chief Justice Roberts is actually not the controlling opinion. The controlling opinion in Morse is actually a concurring opinion by Justice Alito, in which Justice Kennedy joined. So the five votes for the majority were actually three votes, which were not enough, plus two, the two being Alito and Kennedy. And Alito, in his concurrence, made it very clear that he was siding with the majority based on two preconditions. And those preconditions were, one, that we were only talking about speech that advocated illegal drug use, that no other category of speech, no other topic was applicable. And Morse was not to be extended to any kind of student speech other than advocating illegal drug use. And the second prong was that, or the second precondition that Justice Alito imposed was that the speech could not in any way be deemed political. Any speech that could even be remotely considered political, such as advocating the repeal of drug laws, still enjoyed protection. When that decision was handed down, a lot of us, myself included, said, well, if it's limited to those facts, maybe it won't be such a bad decision after all. And it took very little time for judges in subsequent, subsequent cases to ignore the limitation on Morse that comes from the Alito concurrence. And they said, well, whenever there is a threat to the disruption of the school environment under Morse, educators are free to restrict free speech. That, that any argument that the school environment or the school function, the school charter, the school purpose is disrupted or may be disrupted, theoretically, an administrator, a principal can, can rescind a student's free speech rights. Complete and utter misreading of Morse. And we've seen at least two, they're on my blog, two cases where Morse has been misapplied or that the express limitation of Morse that comes in the Alito concurrence has been completely disregarded, very disregarded. That was the point I wanted to raise in this case of Doninger v. Nihon. The student sued and she sought a, an injunction. Well, an injunction preventing the school from denying her her seat as the class secretary. There was not a full-blown trial. There was merely a hearing on the preliminary injunction. And the federal district judge, this is all in Connecticut, the judge denied the preliminary injunction because he ruled that the plaintiff, the student, was unlikely to prevail on the merits, which, by the way, is standard an analysis. That's how you decide whether to grant an injunction. He was applying the right test, but he applied, but he got it wrong. And in the case, first thing I did when I looked at the decision, the memorandum denying the preliminary injunction, the first thing I did was I did a search on Morse. And sure enough, not once, but twice, the judge incorrectly cited to Morse, despite the fact that this case has nothing to do with advocating illegal drug use. In fact, it does not involve advocating any illegal conduct. A blog post saying, hey, contact the school and complain about the fact that the festival was canceled, that's not illegal conduct. It's not advocating illegal 
has nothing to do with drug use. And of course, calling someone, especially a government official, a state actor, a douchebag is clearly political speech. If I say John McCain is a douchebag, that's a political statement. It might be a rather crass, not very substantive political statement, but it's a political statement. It's also one that happens to be factually correct. So this fact pattern fails both of the preconditions for uh, under the Alito concurrence in Morse to apply Morse. Cannot apply Morse to this fact, and the judge did. So rounding third and heading for home, I think the important thing as you wait for, for news, as we await the decision from the circus, from the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, the test is going to be, the interesting thing is going to be not just whether or not the student wins or loses on the merits at the, uh, at the appellate stage, but if so, was it, if the, if the plaintiff loses, if the appellant loses, is it going to be because the Court of Appeals invoked Morse incorrect, or will the Court of Appeals get Morse right, in which case we have to rely on the other free speech, student free speech cases, which I'm not going to go into here. The appellant, the student may win, may lose, may lose for reasons that don't have anything to do with Morse. And that would be sad, but it wouldn't be enraged if she loses because the Second Circuit incorrectly cites to Morse. That will be men. And I fear that it may happen because the district court judge made that mistake. We've seen Morse incorrectly applied. We've seen the Alito concurrence disregarded in its entirety, not once, but at least twice, as you can find on my blog. And if it happens yet again in this case, we're clearly, and we need to take a step back. We're not dealing with any threat of violence. We're not dealing with advocating illegal drug use or any other illegal activity. We're dealing with clearly political speech. We're dealing with a student who was not on school grounds, not using school equipment, not accessing school accounts. Strictly private speech in a strictly private setting. She was at home on her own computer, posting on her own blog. If the school can censor that, if they can penalize students for the speech that is clearly political, that is non-obscene, that does not incite violence, that is engaged in off school grounds, not during school hours, and not using school equipment, then Tinker is gone. Tinker is dead. And it's no longer a question like I said, of students shedding their constitutional rights at the schoolhouse gate, then they've shed them before they even get to school. They've shed them in their bedroom. They've shed them in their home. They've shed them on vacation. Just by being a student, just the 24-7, 365 status of being a student now means that they've shed their constitutional rights, or at least a subset of their constitutional rights. That cannot possibly be. And I hope that the Second Circuit gets it right. We'll have to stay tuned. And when the decision comes, I will most certainly blog about it. And that's it. I kept it to pretty much 20 minutes, minus the introductory fluff. Please comment, email me, contact me. Let me know if you enjoyed this, if it was useful. If you have topics that you might want to see me address in future podcasts. And thanks for listening. And that noise you hear in the background, incidentally, is Diamond snoring. I apologize if you can hear Diamond snoring in the back. And we'll talk to you hopefully next This has been the Stitch in Haste podcast. Thanks for listening. For more commentary, please visit my blog, A Stitch in Haste, at www.kipesquire.com. That's www.kipesquire.com. You can also email me at kipesquire at yahoo.com 
or leave me a voicemail at 646-386-9964. Thanks for listening.